Everybody and welcome to the 145th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that prefers to trade magic cards inside where it's warm rather than outside in the cold. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Glad to be here. How are you this week? Had a good week. Busy week with MTG Finance with all of the Black Friday action going on. Yeah, and Thanksgiving and all that good stuff. So uh, we got the Masters being fully revealed. Yep, that came out. Associated spikes. All sorts of good stuff. Uh, Okay, our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG Finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. What is on the agenda this week? Uh, This week, we have a show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers. James and I will talk about the cards that have moved the most in price. Sorry, did I say four segments? I meant three. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I will review some of the cards that we think will rise in price in the future. And segment three is our topic of the week. Uh, We'll touch on the ultimate masters ev as well as uh what james has titled whispergate um <laughs> which is uh the allusion to insider trading in the intro um, but we'll get into that a little more when we get there so let's start out uh segment one our top mover uh <laughs> i didn't notice you put this on the sheet why don't you tell us about this first card james so Sadisi Brood Tyrant from KTK, foils moving just a little bit, a smidge, $7 to $8, uh, 14%. Uh, I know this is one of your commanders, so I thought we should make note of it. Ah, it is one of my commanders, and I do enjoy playing her quite a bit. She is cool. Um, I'll supply on that these days. Did you notice? Um, start, start, starting to drain. Uh, let me just see how many copies we've got floating around on TCG Player these days. TCG uh, not a, is a mess today, by the way. Like, you can't use the website because you're getting hammered by traffic. Yeah, there's still a, while we're recording this, there's a 15% kickback, which is the highest I've ever seen them have. Um, I went ahead and picked up one of the cards that were, oh, no, that's not true. guess I can just go ahead and say it since it's from a few weeks back. Picked up some additional uh, foil bedlam revelers today for $11 after the coupon. Mm. Um, something I was picking up earlier in the $7 to $10 range and then sold some in July at $20 bucks a piece uh, during the first spike that was related to Mardu Pyromancer. But now there's a completely different deck running it. It's coming up in Hollow One slash Arclight Phoenix uh, hybrid decks. Um, one of them took down an online tournament this weekend. That's a, a powerful card. Um, in any case, yeah, TCG players running like garbage. So we are we are less able to quickly reference their stock and price levels today because it's like two minutes to load a page sometimes. Yeah, I tried to fill the space in between when I was going to find this, but I, I very close came close, but no cigar it's still loading right now. <laughs> uh, well, well, James finishes uh, loading That's that what? page. What? You got it? You got it? <laughs> I'm almost there. Oh. Wait, nope, I'm not. Tether Adrian Volus out of uh wait, M E. 
Is that mythic, mythic edition? edition? Ah, uh, forty to fifty for about a twenty-five percent increase, and uh, supply is getting kind of low on those mythic edition co- singles already. Um, I would ex- have expected supply to be fairly strong through the end of the year, uh, but it could be draining already. Um, I, th- I wonder if we're seeing a lot of the product that got bought up being sold as sets to people and less of them are being cracked than perhaps we may have anticipated. A, I don't think there was anywhere near as much of this set as some people thought there were. I think that my uh, prediction that there was less than 10,000 copies is probably accurate um, because we are not despite how many G- of the 13 GPs where they were being distributed, plus the original online sale, um, we are still not seeing super deep inventory on any of these. Um, if we look at, you know, for instance, to pe- take a peek at Elspeth Knight Errant, for instance, where you can get copies for about 60 bucks now, um, give or take, um, still not seeing super deep results. And there was also a little, th- a little hiccup this weekend. I think the GP Krakow, I think it was the the GP in Poland, which was their only access, or that part of the world's only access to Mythic Edition, um, and they got held up in customs and weren't available for distribution. Oh yeah, I saw that at the event, which really sucks if you pre-ordered and because now who knows how they're going to resolve that? Like individually mailing them out is just a nightmare. So I don't know, but if you look at Elspeth, for instance, twenty six results on TCG Player. Um, so you're talking about something sh- shy of 35 copies or so. Um, if you look at Tezzeret, which made a, a fairly minor jump this week, you're talking about shy of 20 results. There's only a small handful of these GPs left. We're already in the in the hype cycle for Ultimate Masters. That set comes out in two weeks. Um, I suspect we're getting Mythic Edition Part 2 uh, in uh, probably somewhere around Pro Tour Cleveland in February. And all of that adds up to there is never going to be a very robust supply of these Mythic Edition Planeswalkers. This is the only uh, Masterpiece Planeswalkers we have other than the, uh, I think, Liliana of the Veil now as a box topper with Ultimate Masters, if you consider that to be part of the Masterpiece series, which seems to be uh, to be under some debate at Wizards. Um, but the point is, None of those planeswalkers are going to show up as masterpieces for a couple of years at least. So I see very robust growth coming, and I suspect that a few of these will make it on our buy list in the, in the coming weeks. If you can get some deals on some of these during these 15% off sales or some of the other um, uh, sales that might uh, take place late night on eBay or something during the credit crunch in late December, early January. I think you'll be fairly pleased with the results 12 to 18 months out. Yeah, I am definitely interested in going after these singles. I, I feel, kind of feel the same way about the box toppers too, both Mythic Edition and box toppers. I am uh, most interested in pursuing those as singleton cards. Um, you know, I picked up some sets of the Guild Mythic Edition because how could you not? Um, but I think I think catching the mid tier at their lowest point is going to be quite profitable uh, percentage wise and a really easy way if you've got a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars to make a pretty good flip, uh, a pretty a pretty uh, what's the right way to phrase this a a good use of your funds. You know, you're not trying to flip 200 cards if you've got you know 800 bucks. Uh, you can do it with 20. Um, quicker, easier to sell. Uh, so I, I think that's definitely a real strong play. Uh, and if you're 
if you're wise and you're interested in this, you need to be paying a lot of attention right now. Like you need to start keeping track of this today because uh, you need to be able to detect the movements in the inventory levels, and you need to you, you need to know what it looks like every day so that you're ready when the opportunity arises. Yeah. So back on episode 137, when this was <clears throat> late to September or very early October, just before Mythic Edition had come out, um, where they were, some of them were up for pre-orders. The two two of the cards I called out that week were Elspeth Knight Errant at 32 um, to go to 50. She's already well past that. So that was a win. Um, and I think I picked up, uh, I had four copies that were supposed to ship from Canada and they never arrived. Um, so I had to get refunded on those, unfortunately. Um, but to fairies that I picked up in around just short shy of a hundred dollars are already looking pretty good. I called that to go from like 90, 95 to 150 on the basis that it was an important card and standard modern and probably EDH. Um, and sure enough, if you look at the supply for the Teferi mythic edition, there are six results on TCG player between 160 and 180. Really don't see that number expanding much before it contracts again. That is awfully low. Yeah. So um, I think that if you're sitting on a couple of these boxes and getting nervous, don't. You, you're you never going to have the same hype cycle um, that we had on these when they first came out. People are distracted by Ultimate Masters, and if we get another Mythic Edition, most of the action will be money redirected towards that in Q1 of 2019. But you are not going to get screwed on your Mythic Edition boxes. You can, the buy lists on these are already very generous. You can poke around on that with like, um, card kingdom or face-to-face games or you know your local shop and have a chat about what they might give you for them there are opportunities to get out of most of the box and maybe keep teferi in the packs and still come out even hmm. so um i've got i sold a bunch of these at 600 made some good money i've got another six or seven unclaimed copies a couple of which i have to pass back to you i believe uh yeah um <laughs> And and then the remainder of those I'll probably sit on for a little while and then see how the market develops. Hang on, Adam. I've got uh, yeah, I've got eight, I think, still in inventory roughly around the ballpark. Nice. And I'm just kind of like, <sighs> we're talking about like building a house, and I'm like, maybe I just wait on these until I have to put a down payment down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's say you got in at like three hundred flat US, and it was probably a little better than that. Teferi is looking like he's going to push two. So just Teferi plus two of the $50 ones gets you clear. And then the rest of all of that is bonus. Yeah. That's a nice place to be. It is uh, a good opportunity for people that were able to, to capitalize on it. It was annoying, though. I had to bug all of my friends who were going to GPs to help me out. Uh, so it was uh, having a network of people that can work with you is very valuable. Uh, and I, and and just so people know, this isn't. I actually uh, paid my friends, or at least I offered to pay them. Maybe I never gave them the money. At the very least, I offered to pay my <laughs> friends like ten bucks per box just to make it worth their while, uh, so that I was giving them a reason to ha- help me out. Yeah, I, I paid everybody that that picked them up for me. Um, I think that many of those people, as things developed, uh, felt like they should change their mind. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just re- reserved additional copies for themselves, but. You know, it is what it is. Well, yeah. People, not everybody, not everybody sees what's coming down the track at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and part of it too was just like you had to have the money to throw at it right then and there. 
Uh, and you know, you look, you look at statistics right now and most, uh, so um, we're, we're getting mildly off topic, but there was that report a little while ago, uh, that, uh, Alexandria Crazio Cortez, one of the, uh, congressman elect from New York only had $7,000 in her bank account and people, you know, a lot of the media cycle was like, wow, this, you know, she has no money, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, kind of laughing that she had nothing. Meanwhile, you had everyone under the age of 35 is like, I would like $7,000 in my bank account. That sounds great. Uh, so it's not surprising. It, it's really, it's, it's completely realistic that a lot of players simply didn't have the spare capital to go after mythic edition and and never will or at least won't anytime in the near future or anything like that so even the people who recognize as a good opportunity are you know don't really have a choice because they they got to pay rent and they can't have that much money tied up in magic cards that they could own for a couple weeks or maybe a couple months so that that's difficult for the people in those scenarios that's that's challenging on it which weren't the case well, I mean, talking about scoping things early, and um, we're going to talk about the expected valuable to master some a little bit here, and <laughs> then remind people what I paid for that when somebody brought my attention to a sweet deal on. Yeah, there Twitter. were some numbers on there. Uh, some good numbers there. Yeah. All right, so let's finish up this list. For okay. Uh, Bloom Tender Foils uh, out of Eventide 100, the 122, about 30%. We did talk about this recently. Uh, oh, here we go. Bloom tender foils were eighty six to three hundred uh, a couple episodes ago. A couple episodes ago, two weeks ago, it looks like. Um, so looks like they've. Oh, we said three hundred wasn't going to happen, but it looks like they they might have settled a little closer to one twenty five, one forty, which I completely believe that seems uh, like a pretty realistic place for those to land. Mine, my, my, my thinking is that it came down into the. 80s and 90s for what scant number of copies was sitting in the marketplace as people assumed it might be an ultimate masters and then as it was revealed that it was yet again not reprinted um now we're seeing another subsequent minor yeah spike. that could be it again the, the market on this is so shallow that you have to like these are, these are the kind of cards that you need to go poke around to see what they're actually selling for look at um buy it now and auction sold uh, results on eBay, compare it to some Facebook groups and get a sense of what you're supposed to Yeah, be and it, this is also the type of card that, frankly, you might have trouble selling um, simply because the, the amount of people willing to pay. If you're willing to pay $140 for a, a Magic card, you generally are not going to do so loosely and you will likely be the type of person to recognize uh, that in the case of Bloom Tender, it's not necessarily a good idea. Since even if it missed Ultimate Masters, that doesn't mean that there isn't a reprint right around the corner. Um, so. Yeah, at some point this card yeah. gets reprinted. Um, one of the nicer things that could happen if you're holding foils is it shows up in a commander deck. Um, in like a fall set or something. Uh, if, if that happens, then you're still in really good position. If it comes out as a foil, most people are going to focus on the new foils, especially if the art's good. Um, and it, you know, original foils usually hold their value pretty well in the face of a reprint, but in large part, that depends on how iconic the card is. Um, you know, an original foil Manamorphos, original foil LOTV, Snapcaster, those kind of things, you know, iconic staples that are present in a lot of different decks going to do better than Bloom Tender. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
All right, so next on the list, this is kind of like a, a pet joke of mine. The Final Fortune 7th Edition foils going from, in theory, 144 to 200. There's a guy I follow on, uh, or that follows me on Twitter. I don't know his full name, unfortunately, because it's not included in his Twitter handle, um, and we've never discussed it. Um, but every time I ask people in response to some sale that's going on, like an eBay coupon or a TCG deal or whatever, what are you guys buying today? This guy inevitably responds, foil 7th Edition Final Fortune. <laughs> And he's showed me pictures in the past of like 200 copies that he has. So um, when I tell people that MGG Finance doesn't hoard like most of the copies of something, <laughs> that's mostly true. <laughs> but in the case of Final Fortune 7th Foils, I'm not entirely sure. I really couldn't tell you how many are in the, the what percentage least, are in the hands I of just one guy. I applaud his uh, commitment to the project. Right. You really, I mean, like, it's one thing to go hog wild for like a month or two and buy a bunch of them and feel like you're not making any progress and be like, okay, I think, I think I'm going to get off of this here. I'm done. Uh, but to just keep going, right. Be like, no, I am in this for the long haul. That's commitment. Uh, I would have to see his full spreadsheet to tender uh, accurate judgment. But I suspect that if he's been buying up the ramp, the higher his average cost gets and the longer it takes for him to eventually unload them, the <laughs> less exciting this project becomes. If he's holding 600 copies and his average uh, in was like 20 bucks, and he then he has favorable math for unloading a small percentage of his collection into buy lists at some point and trickling out the rest over some period of time. But for instance, if we go look up on Card Kingdom, how many copies they'd be willing to take off his hands, 7th edition foils, they will take up to 20 currently, and they will give him 55.90 in credit. So, you know, what was his average in? And how long will it be before that credit number tops triple digits? Yeah, I think it was pretty clear that this was not a... (laughs) Not the most efficient use of funds a while ago. This is this is why I, I harp on the, the premise that the more the more shallow the demand profile of the card, the less deep you want to be going on it. Yeah. Um, now, if for, if Final Fortune suddenly became this major thing in a format of relevance and seventh foils were selling hot, he looks brilliant. But I think that this is one of those cases where you know, a clock strikes, a, a broken clock stri- strikes the right time twice a day, right? <laughs> and I'm not, I, I would love to see his math and write an article about it because I think it would be fascinating. Uh, yeah, so I think that you are probably giving this guy and most people who do this a lot more credit in regards to record keeping and math of the decision. I think it was <laughs> this card seems like it should be worth more money and there's not that many foils and I'm going to buy them. And then that was where sort of the end of the research phase of that project. Potentially. All right. So next on the list, we got surgical extraction, both in the original new Phyrexia and modern masters, 2015 foil copies going from, uh, is this the pricing for non foils you noted here? Yeah, it must be. So uh, 25 to 35 for non-foils, I believe. Yes, that is correct. And then foils are arguably somewhere in the 50 to $60 range right now. I had one that I had priced on um, eBay at like 24 or something. And somebody, 
foolishly um, tried to underbid it at 20. Guys, never do that to my eBay account. Because as soon as I see that, I just double the price. <laughs> like, <laughs> please. Don't, if, if something's spiking, just buy it at the price you find it at and force me to sell it to you. If you give me the chance to say no, I get the chance to change the price, which is the first thing I'm going to do when I'm when I know that the card might be spiking because I'm aware that it spiked with Ultimate Masters. Don't get greedy; just buy the card. Yeah, trying that's, to uh, that's, that's my hot tip. Trying to get somebody to give you a discount on a card that's already spiking it's is just silly. Generally, not going to work out in your favor. Just take it nope. for the price that's at. Don't get me wrong; I send people like twenty percent off low balls constantly on ebay on cards that are going to spike in six months which given the turnover from major vendors and their buy listing um, engine often makes sense for both parties it uh or i'll go to a russian vendor and say if i take these 10 cards will you give me this much off and then you only have to pay once for shipping um and generally those deals will get done but if it's spiking just buy the card yeah um, so next on the list, Drog School Captain, uh, important card in Bant Spirits, which seems to be holding its own in Modern. Um, you know, it's not going to dominate at any point, but there's enough people that believe the deck is a viable aggro control mid-range hybrid similar to, you know, that occupies kind of the same nebulous spot in the Modern meta as, say, Humans does. Um, you know, el- controlish elements as you continue to lay threats on the table. Um Foils, this is an uncommon, which is why it's noteworthy for the foils to be going from 8 to 13. Um, don't see them being in a rush to reprint this, uh, so I would suspect that these probably get up to 15 to 20 before um, there's any downward pressure on the foils, and inventory is not particularly deep, so uh, I think you could probably hold these through the forthcoming sales lull and look to sell into it in the as modern picks back up in the first quarter of 2019 yeah keep in mind that we don't know the uh the what is it the format for pt cleveland is still open right um so chances are and i saw ed talking about this on twitter and and ed's generally pretty spot on um except for when he makes bets about bitcoin but (laughs) <laughs> that aside, he was saying that he was expecting that today's ban list was uh, no changes because Wizards doesn't want to screw, change up Modern yet. They want to wait for the next setup uh, and then cha- and then kind of shift Modern around ahead of Pro Tour Cleveland, um, which will be announced as Modern. And if that's the case, uh, you're going to see a resurgence in modern in, in terms of modern popularity. Resurgence might not be the right word, but a, a bump in modern popularity uh, and a lot of those staples and, and cards of that nature will obviously uh, increase in price at that time. Uh, Drog Skull Captain being the perfect example of something that doesn't really have a lot of demand to begin like normally like the only place it's coming from is modern like no one else really wants this card but when you get a rise in modern demand when 20 percent more people are thinking about the format and buying cards that's where it's really going to get the most value i'm just looking at the tcg player inventory there are no near mints left huh? there are four lightly played foils your mint is sold out yeah i mean that doesn't surprise me people honestly people probably bought that immediately right like i would expect as soon as spirits got big that it probably took off well 
I mean, we're, we saw the spike this week, but it's uh, it's unusual for a spike not to have some trailing twenty eight dollar copies or whatever. Somebody just took it down. Like, there's nothing left. Uh, that, that, um, that's true. That's true. So, I, so I would suspect that market is sitting at fifteen, but I would suspect we're going to see this at twenty to twenty five very soon. Like I, earlier, I commented like it might happen in the medium term. I think it's going to be pretty much immediately here. Um, as for Ed and his Bitcoin bet, I'm about to lose one in twenty days myself. Um, made a bet with a follower that settles on December 14th. It was S&P 500 versus Bitcoin for a year. I was doing pretty good till Bitcoin started to nosedive last week. S&P 500 is only at plus 1%, so it wouldn't have been hard to beat with anything, really, that wasn't uh, a loss. But given that Bitcoin's looking like it's going to be down 45% in the interim, I too will be losing my Bitcoin bet. But fortunately, it was some minor amount of money and not shaving my head or whatever ed had to do and buying jeremy a suit yeah he got out of shaving his head i believe but uh i don't know what the the outcome of the suit was um i'm, I'm sure he honored the suit yeah yeah i don't think that, that wouldn't be the case uh anyways following drug captain we've got monomorphos monomorphos all over the board today uh we saw both mma and shadow more foils and non-foils took off the non-foils up 10 to 20 i, I don't remember what the foils were um, basically probably double up across the board. That's as a result of, uh, not being in ultimate masters. Um, uh, Mon- monomorphos was last printed in the first modern masters, which by the way, was now five years ago. Um, so quite a while at this point, and it, you're seeing it in the, uh, it's always been played in modern, you know, in storm and various combo strategies, but it, uh, has seen another resurgence lately with the Arclight Phoenix deck. Uh, which has been quite popular all of a sudden. So not surprising somebody went after Monomorphos. And it will, $20 is a little high, but frankly, I don't see why this won't be at least $15 uh, until it gets reprinted. And frankly, it might hit $20, honestly. Yeah, I, there's enough action on this card that and low enough supply. Between if, if the only two sets you were ever printed in were the low print run Shadowmore and the low print run Modern Masters from 2013, you can it doesn't matter that you're supposedly an uncommon or a common like you are (laughs) you are basically a mythic so it it could easily hold 20 until it gets a reprint i do i do have some suspicion that you see this in the next ravnica set um the mixed color symbols and the name of the card work fine and i think gruel is one of the um guilds we're getting in the next set this would be a nice reprint there um that would add some real value to the set and bring this back down to earth so i i didn't have any non-foils in my spec box i did have a couple of foils that i'm trying to sell um but i went back to my collection and found a double handful of modern masters 2013 non-foils and a full play set of shadowmore non-foils so don't tell me magic finance is useless to you when you can just have a bunch of like random Shadowmore commons sitting around that are suddenly worth 40 bucks. Yeah, there you go. The right way to do this is to buy a $50,000 collection and then just strip out everything worth more than $100 and then let it rot in your basement and every six months go pick some out. Go mining. Although to be fair, you should have pulled out Monomorphos a while ago. It was $10 before today. So it was absolutely worth pulling out prior to today. Fair. I'm, I'm just happy that I am was too incompetent to have done so. <laughs> Sometimes being late to the game and being the last man standing is exactly where you Well, I'm be. teasing you, but I'm teasing you as somebody who has multiple times like been like, oh, I should have done this a while ago, uh, and I didn't, but it's very good for me now that I didn't. 
So anyway, I think I think you sell like you don't have to be in a huge rush, but in the next six weeks or so, if you can get the you can get a solid price over fifteen a copy, go for it. Do somebody a Twitter deal, sixty bucks a set or something. Collect that money, roll it into something else, and away mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. So final card on the list after quite a lengthy discussion. Um, Rogue's Passage from Origins foils going from two twenty five to five. Not a huge jump, and this is the kind of thing where we usually make fun of. A, a card that people buy a single copy of for EDH decks is not. It's currently sitting at five bucks. It's not really going to make you a lot of money, but it is a hundred percent plus gain on a card that is spiking at a weird time. This card is included in Ultimate Masters. Um, it's also in 40,000 plus EDH decks on EDH rec, um, which is not a number I would have guessed. I would have assumed it was in quite a few, but that's a lot, a lot. Um, people like making their creatures unblockable. Well, it's, it's definitely, I, I play it in several decks and it's very useful as a utility card, uh, and se- for several reasons, um, for one, you can get something like Sidisi, uh, can now attack safely, um, because it won't be blocked and you can get the trigger. Uh, you can offer other effects where you get paid if they deal combat damage to a player and getting them through is important. So there's a variety of reasons why a card like this is useful uh, to people. Sure. Conversely, you're never going to make any money on this card now that it's coming out in Ultimate Masters as a uncommon foil reprint because Masters foils being in every pack, um, which is part of what props up the EV on the set, as we're going to talk about shortly, um, also uh, results in a relatively low foil multiplier. Uh, foils from master sets generally are worth less um, by multiplier than they would be if they came out of an original uh, pack in a standard set um, because they're just more common overall. And tons of these will hit the market shortly. So it's lovely that it's at the top of the list, but I don't think it's going to make anybody any money. Yeah, I agree with you. And to be fair, I don't think anyone was making any money on it before anyways. Uh, it, it, it was a difficult card to make money on because there were a couple foils, I think, and you were always running the risk of reprints. Fair. Um, I mean, I would guess that... Let me just see what, for instance, Card Kingdom was offering. On original pack foil Rogue's Passage. Uh, they like offering three bucks. Apparently it was in Conspiracy Take the Crown, too. Yeah, yeah. They keep putting it in stuff, which is kind of why it was hard to to do a lot with. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, if you're holding any of those, you probably want to buy list them while you can, um, since they haven't yeah. downshifted that buy list price yet. All right. Moving on to cards that yeah, I, I are actually exciting. <clears throat> Let's talk about our picks to the week. Um, my first pick this week is, uh, to fairy's protection, specifically the judge foil, which is the only foil printing of this card. Um, call this card for about like if you can get it in the 85 to 90 dollar range you're probably in pretty good shape uh, i think it's going to end up being a 130 140 card before we see a reprint of this foil um judge foil packs are are not uh something that the market is done issuing i think there's a chance that more of these are hitting the market this year um but I don't suspect that to have significant downward pressure. It probably just sets up another buying opportunity. And if it ends up just resulting in a slightly different dollar cost average, slightly more, slightly less, so be it. If you can get some 60 or $70 copies later, you just buy those again. Um, thing about these judge foils is if they are in high demand, and this is uh, in 7,000 decks or something on EDH rec and should probably be in more, um, 
would be in more if it was more broadly distributed than the only two printings it's had, which was uh, originally in Commander 2017, and then as the Judge Foil, um, it would probably be in 15 or 20,000 decks. Um, you're just going to have a lot of trouble uh, losing money on this thing, given that you probably got looking at two or three years before you see foils of this again. Yeah, I mean, really, the takeaway here is uh, uh, where else are you going to see it? Right. Like, what are you worried about here? What is your what is going to be the problem? And and there isn't one. Right. Uh, you're, you're pretty much safe. Um, so even if it doesn't take off anytime soon, you've got a lot of you just you just wait. Right. You're not going to get nailed on this anytime soon. So uh, I do like this. I, and the only thing I'm wondering about is if there's additional judge waves. And I feel like we talked about this briefly and I don't remember what we said. Can you refresh my memory? I, I, I haven't heard definitive information yet from judges I was talking to. I suspect that there is a, from what I can tell, there's a judges conference coming up and that's another uh, time when judge packs are handed out. Um, the judge conferences um, are different than the exemplar program where they're mailed out. And it's possible that Teferi's protection judge foils will be handed out at that round of conferences that are forthcoming. I'm not sure if there's an exemplar wave beyond that. Um, those are details okay. you probably want to nail down. However, given how few copies are left listed on TCG Player, I'm currently counting seven. Um, that's probably a card you just want to go ahead and move in on. And by the way, they're, over in Europe, they are significantly cheaper. And one of <laughs> the things I've been buying on uh, cardmarket.eu over the last week. The Teferis. Oh, yeah. hmm. Over in Europe, you can get them as low as 50 or 60 US. That is Pretty low. I mean, that's like low enough that you can make a profit just immediately uh, and then add in that you are expecting an increase. And that's it's a nice, uh, nice little profit yeah, there. And buy lists haven't quite caught up, but I suspect that they will within six months. Um, I think you're going to you'll be able to get more <clears throat> than the price in Europe easily from buy lists in credit at least. And then, you know, you probably get your out on eBay onesie twosie fashion kind of thing i'm happy to be holding say 10 12 copies of and they'll probably do 30 or 40 percent after fees would be my guess it's a lot of copies i think i've i think i've already got eight i'm willing to take a few a few more on wow that's a lot it's a good card okay all right what's your what's your first Fine. pick uh my first pick of the week is aether vile uh, I'm looking at the IMA and MMA copies. Um, so now that we have the full spoiler for Ultimate Masters, uh, you know, the interest now turns to what wasn't reprinted. Um, obviously, Monomorphos is one of those cards. That's why we're talking about it. There are a couple others, too. So I just kind of started scrolling through the list and I said, OK, well, what else wasn't in Modern Masters? or in Ultimate Masters that's highly played in Modern uh, and doesn't have a bunch of other uh, f copies floating around? Um, and the answer was Aether Vial. So you can pick up an MMA and IMA copies, mostly IMA, for around $30 or so right now. Uh, and that's kind of like across the board. Um, and I think that if you give it a little bit of time, uh, you're probably looking at prices upwards of 45 maybe $50, and possibly more. Um, the card's pretty popular in humans, right? Uh, and various other strategies. Um, you know, a lot of those modern creature decks run that run the card to that effect. Uh, and there's always something in modern playing. It's the 12th most popular card right now. 
So I'm not even talking about foil copies, just non-foil. Uh, you know, if we see an increase in demand in modern, uh, this is definitely going to be part of that wave. Yeah, this almost made my list last week. It was like my fourth card. Um, so I'm fully mm-hmm. in agreement. The the Its status is the 12th most played card in all of modern, according to Magic Online stats. And the fact that it that humans and merfolk and anything else that ends up tribal has every reason to be playing this. I think does Band, Band Spirits run this as well? I, I was in the middle of talking and I'm like, I had the thought, but I didn't know for sure whether it yeah, was Yeah, it not. is. Yeah, Band Spirits runs it. So yeah, humans, Band Spirits, swag, and merfolk, yeah. and death and taxes, and any forthcoming tribal deck that is looking to operate on similar dynamics. This This just becomes... This is an inevitable gainer who can only be limited by its next reprint. Given that Ultimate Masters is on the table, it's not included. You probably get at least six months on this, and you might get up to another two years. In which case, it it, yeah. it could easily be a Noble Hierarch style card that ends up, or Engineered Explosives that ends up in the sixty to eighty dollar range before a reprint. Yeah, the the ceiling on this is you know a ceiling quote unquote is definitely seventy eighty dollars or more. Um, and I don't know if Wizards is going to be in a rush to reprint it either. Uh, it's never going to get banned. There's always going to be somebody that wants to play it, right? Like, what are the odds that there's no deck in modern that wants Aether Vial that's any good? Especially humans becoming um, what it is. It's it's hard to imagine humans getting to the point where it's not playable uh, without getting banned. So I your price ceiling is a good bit higher than what I'm calling out. You're probably good on a reprint for months, if not years. Uh, the demand is always going to be there. Seems pretty solid. Um, now your next one. Hold on. I got, I one, I got one final comment on Ether Vial. The, the final okay. thing I'll say is that the in, it's not at a tipping point yet. The, the latter is relatively mild on it in the yeah. 30 to 40 range. If you can get the 15% off coupon on your other vials today, which <laughs> if you're hearing this three days from now, doesn't help you much, but there are, are more sales forthcoming, certainly across the various platforms, um, Boxing Day and whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you can get $28 copies with a sale coupon of some kind, your out is probably north of 40 and you just need to not get too greedy. Like, don't be holding out for 80. Look for your exits in the 40, 50, 60 max range. And if you get lucky enough for to dodge a reprint for that long, scoop your money and run along. Right. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. I'm a fan of not getting greedy. That's how you get burned. Um, <laughs> that's back. how you... What? Back what? Back to your transition. Oh, well, well what I was going to say, uh, my other transition was uh, not being greedy is how you don't end up with a bunch of Bitcoin at $3,700. <laughs> yeah when i when i if i was a different person now like if i was sigmund offrester i would probably be having trouble sleeping at night oh yeah G- given yeah. that i i traded an an unlimited black lotus this time last year which at the time was worth about arguably about 4400 us um for bitcoin that was two weeks later worth almost $11,000 and then sat on it too long. And now it's worth like 2,800 or something. So I chewed away about 40% of the value of the original value of the Lotus. And then the Lotus spiked and now they're worth like anywhere from six to 10,000, depending on who you talk to. Um, mine was particularly good shape. So let's say that mine is currently worth seven to 8,000 or something. Um, 
Not not the best move I made in the last 365 days. Well, what are you gonna do, huh? <laughs> win, win some, you lose some. Yeah, uh, at the and I agree. Sigmund probably would have shot himself by now. <laughs> um, what I was gonna say and, was, and given, and given how skeptical he was of Bitcoin, I'm, he he definitely gets some rub-ins with me at this point. And uh, you're dumb enough to talk to him. Um, my what I was gonna say is your next pick is something I absolutely would have gone with this week if you hadn't already put it on our spreadsheet. Yeah, so this isn't likely to be a huge percentage gainer, especially after fees. But market is relatively shallow on foil collected companies, and it too has dodged a reprint thus far. Um, given that it's only ever had a single printing, <clears throat> I think th- th- this could easily be on the list of reprints for 2019, and if not 2019, 2020. The difference between those two will probably determine how well this turns out for you. I don't want to be super deep on it because it is setting up for about the right timeline to get reprinted. But I'd be happy to have... I've already like been in and out of this. I was in, a, in on this card at 12 and was selling them at 30 or something. So I've already made my money on collected company foils. But I'm considering getting in on a couple of play sets at, in and around 40 minus some kind of discount coupon. And then looking to out them closer to like 55 or 60. It's in the top 20 spells in modern. Um, the decks that it's in aren't particularly dominant. Um, but the the overall inventory of these foils has been draining and draining and draining. And there just aren't that many left out there. It's not quite a tipping point card, but it's it's a card that at minimum, you probably want to have a few on hand. I mean, I'm seeing 11 results now on TCG Player starting in at around $40, $41, pretty quickly climbing up to 50 That's a steep ladder. So I, I think you snap up, snap off the last copies in the low 40s and look to exit closer to 60 You'll probably do, do just fine. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan here of Collected Company. Uh, even, you know, 40 bucks is pricey, but... It just seems like without the UMA reprint uh, and how popular this is, I mean, it's very similar to Aether Vial, right? They have like similar demand profile. Uh, Aether Vial's 12th, Collected Company's 20th. I think Collected Company sees probably more EDH play too. Uh, either it's just it's just so well positioned that it's hard to imagine it not making you money. Yeah. All right. What's your next pick? Uh, so I'm going to finish up this week. Kind of an odd one, but uh, I think but uh, Expedition Map, Foils. Um, you can find Modern Masters 2 copies for 10 bucks right now. Um, and Zendikar copies at like 15 or 16 although the supply on that is pretty shallow. Uh, Expedition Map is the 45th most played card in Modern, so pretty high, still pretty high. Uh, you know, top 50 is high. That includes lands, too, I think. Um, was And it's the is in 25,000 EDH rec decks. So it's very high uh, on EDH rec. I think that puts it in like the 50 to 70th most played card in EDH. Uh, and it also, like Monomorphos, was not in Ultimate Masters. So you've got a card that lots of people in Modern are playing. Lots of people in EDH are playing. Hasn't had a reprint in a little while uh, because the last one was Modern Masters... Was it 2017 or was it 2015? Maybe it was 2017. Uh, wait, let me check really quick. No, Modern Masters 2015. So it's been three years since we've seen Expedition Map. Uh, supply is pretty low on both of them. Um, not like ultra low. We're not talking four copies, but definitely at low-ish. Uh, so I would not be surprised to see attention getting turned to Expedition Map uh, similar in the way we saw it with Monomorphos in the next week or two. 
Um, and that, you know, if you're getting in at 10, I think you can look to get out at 20 ish, maybe, maybe even 25. If you get lucky, I can buy that. The, it's in the top 50 cards played in modern, uh, critical in, uh, decks like Tron. And while I don't think it's quite as hot as Metamorphos, which is, was released as an uncommon modern masters, 2013 versus a common in 2015, um, significantly more of the expedition maps around. You might want to look at uh, Zendikar original foils because Modern Masters 2015 foils are, are not something anybody wants. And since that the original foil printing is also the only good foil printing, um, that makes it a little bit more interesting to be taking a stab at whether original foils might be capable of jumping. Well, I definitely think that Modern Mass or Zendikar foils at 15 are very solid and possibly better than the $10 Modern Masters copies. I don't know if I want to pay $18, $19 for Zendikar pack foils. They could be $35. I'm not going to say that they wouldn't, but I feel, you know, if you're paying much more than $16 for a Zendikar foil, uh, I like the MMA foils at 10 more. Now, that 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 turns into a seesaw. I like zendikar foils at 17 more than i like mma at 14 um sure just kind of all over the place i get that okay uh let's see you have, you have a last one here huh so let me bring up some data all right so my final pick this week is anguish unmaking buy a box promos um i recall buying a bunch of non-foil sorry english and japanese buy a box promo f- for like six bucks or something from Harayuya, like maybe eight months ago or something. Now you can get the English ones for about 12 bucks. Inventory is draining hard. It's in 22,000 plus decks on EDH rec. Um, sell target of 20, maybe $25. This should be good for 50% plus after fees. Um, I think that's going to be a very good place to be. It's just a great card if you're playing those colors um, in EDH. And the buy box promos are stunning. Fantastic art, one of the best executions of the full uh, art uh, template. And uh, I don't think you're going to have trouble unloading these because they are going to dry up this year. Yeah, and uh, I have them too. Uh, I bought a bunch. I don't remember for what price. I'd have to dig through all of my numbers. Um, but they are certainly a, a solid card. The buy box promos do look really cool. Um, no question there. It's, uh, it's from... Avacyn's perspective is Soren Zapser, uh, which is pretty cool, um, or sort of over Avacyn's shoulder. In any case, a very cool card, wildly popular in EDH. Uh, so I would love to see this go too. So I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you're right. I guess is where, where I would go with this. All right. Um, all right. So we're gonna skip through the metagame we can review for this week and tackle it again next week. A um, couple of uh, meteor topics to get. Uh, get through today. Um, We want to talk about the EV um, expected value of Ultimate Masters. There's an article I'm working on, uh, but Saffron Olive's article, which is almost always pretty much the same as mine, um, uh, came out today. Um, And we'll also dive into the revelation last week that I knew about Back to Basics being an Ultimate Masters before I was supposed to and (laughs) uh, set the record straight on what exactly happened there and, and my take, at least, on uh, what I, how I think people should be viewing that information. James, and then you can, James climbs up on a soapbox and <laughs> uses also, his podcast a, as a platform. 
Well, at minimum, to clarify what actually happened, since one of the fascinating things about these kinds of things as they go down in the magic community is nobody ever bothers to ask. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm giving you a hard time. There was was a monstrous Reddit thread that went on where nobody ever bothered to reach out to me and say, hey, what happened here? Um, The the, the jury was definitely settled before you... Before information was received, yes. Yeah. Um, Another thing I wanted to just touch on before we jump into the bigger topics... Um, I had a pretty cool buy list experience recently that uh, is half humble brag, but half reminder that one of the things you can do um, to assist uh, your margins with MTG Finance is to have a box of potential buy list uh, cards on deck and ready to go. Rather than leaving everything sitting around in your collection until it's too late, it's good to have um a setup that works for you the one that i'm currently using is that i have stuff that i have specs that have not yet matured i have a bad beats box where the specs are old and there's no good way to get rid of them (laughs) which i eventually shift over into the buy list box if they get too ripe um i have a box for various formats edh modern uh legacy etc which are collection side stuff um and i also have a uh, ready to buy list box where i'll if I have usually the difference between that and the ready to sell box or currently selling box is that I have a lot of copies of something. If I have 20 or 30, for instance, Teferi's Protection, rather than selling them one at a time on eBay, um, I might choose to just out them all to a buy list, take slightly less, but get all the money up front. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the benefits of having a box like that ready to go is that um, if, if a cool scenario develops where you can like work the system or take advantage of a good buy list offer or um, a coupon or something, you're ready to go. Um, And the way that I leveraged that most recently was face-to-face games here in Toronto uh, over the Canadian Thanksgiving, which was the first weekend in October, um, offered a 40% uh, trade-in credit, which is uh, significantly higher than they usually offer. Um, So I scooped up a bunch of stuff out of that box, quickly checked it on the face-to-face website and found that I could unload like seven copies of Perforos, God of the Forge, eight copies of Thassa, God of the Sea, 20 Curse of Opulence, five Recruiter of the Guard, 14 Mizics of the Is Magnus, 15 KCI, 20 Gitrog Monster, uh, a Sisse Weatherlight Captain FTV, three Eternal Witness FNMs that we picked up in Europe last year, 10 Cyclonic Rift, MM17 Foils. So stuff where like I've already been selling a lot of this stuff onesie twosie, but again, if you're holding deep inventory, you might just want to scoop the money early, especially when you're getting a, you know, a favorable deal. And when all was said and done, um, just on the submission of the buy list versus original costs, getting the scooping the credit, I with that big credit bonus, I was getting a 98% profit margin. So total cost was like 525 US and I was uh, scooping about 1000 US. So basically a double up. Um, but then the next step was instead of often when you have credit, you feel like you need to move on it right away. I decided, I checked in and said to the ownership, like, uh, can I use this credit during sale periods? And they said, yes. And and that's relatively unique. A lot of places like for the Black Friday sales said, like Abu Games said, like trade credit is not allowed. So um, a place that will let you store uh, stash credit, give a credit bonus at some point, and then let you use it during a sale and enjoy the same discount as if you were paying with cash is a really good situation. So... Then I went back in there on uh, Friday before I left town for the weekend and 
the uh, they were offering 10% off general singles, 20% off foils in the case, and 30% off a specific binder of kind of like weird stuff, a lot of which was like foreign stuff. And I managed to scoop up um, with the trade credit a German original Darksteel Arcban Ravager for the equivalent of like $24. Um, a Japanese metal worker for the equivalent of $30. Uh, three SP foil, original pack foil Golgari Grave Trolls from Ravnica City of Guilds for $21 apiece. Um, a Russian uh, Watery Grave original uh, for 7 bucks, And a foil original Seedborn Muse for the equivalent of $24. Um, I also picked up a promo, promo Bedlam Reveler for the equivalent of eight and got <laughs> had a little bit of a, a moment. Uh, they had the JSS promo City of Brass that we talked about a while mm-hmm. back for uh, 180 in the case. With the 20% discount, that would have been uh, a, like 146 or something, 144 or something like that. Um, and... That was just insane because the lowest price on that, and that was in Canadian dollars, the lowest price on that uh, in US pricing on CCG was in like the mid 300s. So when the owner came over to look over my total pile, he went, ah, you know what? I think we mispriced this. And I was like, you know what? Like given that the guy, I could have pushed it because it was what what it's listed in the case the policy is they have to honor it. But given that they're allowing, <laughs> allowing me to use trade-in credit on the deal, He's got to be a little give and take. So I said, okay, what do you what do you want to price this at retrospectively? And he, uh, or retroactively, and he said 300 Canadian, which was still like, if you consider 30% off is the US price, like in the mid 200s, um, which is a very reasonable price. Um, so I took that and got it for the equivalent of like 230 US. And then they had a, I was trying to figure out what like big ticket card I should scoop because one of the things with buy listing is don't go from like, don't give them a hundred cards and get a thousand cards. That's moving in the opposite direction. You, you want to go from like a hundred cards to, to one card, five cards, 10 cards. Some always buy, be consolidating your collection. Give yourself less to manage and less to track <laughs> as long as the ROI is roughly. That is the, uh, the long held wisdom that uh, basically was pioneered by Medina way back in the day before I was writing uh, that you should always, when you're trading at your store, always trade up. Uh, so as you know, if the values are equal, one of the ways you could get uh, an advantage, so to speak, was to trade for one larger card, because then you could slowly turn your thousands of piddly cards into cards that were actually good and valuable. Yeah. And so, I mean, I spent most of, during the, the spikes on reserve list <clears throat> last winter, I was submitting buy lists to Abu, uh, Alpha Beta Unlimited, and Card Kingdom in exchange for beta duels. I got a couple of libraries of Alexandria, uh, a Nether uh, Void, etc. Um, and all of that has, has done very well. Um, so I was looking to do something here, but I didn't have like 3,000 Canadian equivalent to go after a beta duel. So what I scooped was a extremely nice um, collector's edition time walk. Um, this thing is truly near mint. And if you know Collector's Edition and, and International Collector's Edition well, you know that because they're square-cornered gold borders, for the back corners to be pristine is extremely rare. And this this card is truly beautiful. I'd call it near mint plus. It might even be gradable. 
Um, and I got it for the equivalent of about 625. So pretty, pretty proud of that one. Um, but the point being, make sure that a, you're paying attention. Um, one of the reasons you should be following MTG finance and it's preaching to the choir for the people to listen to this show, but, um, ignoring it means that you ignore all these opportunities to leverage your collection, leverage your, your buy list potential, um, and get in on connecting the dots. Like when you can link a couple of different hot deals together and end up in a consolidated position, that is exactly where you want to be. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the, the keeping a bio, you know, a, a box of like probably buy listable or like almost buy listable cards handy, uh, is definitely a good idea. Um, I I'm guilty of not doing that myself, but I really should. Cause sometimes those deals come up and I'm like, Oh, I don't really have time right now to to like put a, a box together which like you know within that day or whatever which just means i miss out on the opportunity um but if i kind of had that stuff laying yeah. around like oh this is stuff that like i know i want to buy a list at some point uh now it's like oh all right now i i can just throw this together and, and toss it out there um so like likewise if you've got like a big tournament like a magic fest or a gp or whatever or a star city games thing coming to your local hood and you're planning on attending you don't want to be like <laughs> dicking around with your cards the night before when you're trying to sell your deck for the event and haphazardly pulling shit together to take to the vendors to unload to get the stuff you need or that you're trying to get for your collection. Plan that like a week or two out, like take your time. Don't spend a lot of time on it, but like give yourself a, a moment to breathe and assess your options. And in some cases, if you do get in early enough, you can send those guys an email if you know they're going to be attending and say, hey, this is what I'm going to bring. What you know, can you give me a price tag on this? And then all you got to do is show up, have it, you know, have the buy list order ready to execute and just get a sign off and, and get your check or whatever. And you're going to be in, you know, a much better position than if you're just haphazardly grabbing fistfuls of modern staples and potentially selling stuff at yeah. the wrong time. Which is, you know, basically we're asking magic players to plan ahead. So I expect that to fall on deaf ears, but at least we can say we said it. All right. So let's, let's tackle quote unquote whisper gate. Um, which is a term we're, nobody's. We didn't even talk me. about the Ultimate Masters EV. <laughs> All right, I want to get to that last because it's okay. the bigger topic. I'm only going to spend like five minutes on this whisper okay. bullshit. All right, so <clears throat> the bottom line is this: expect that the people that are covering MTG Finance are out there doing research. Expect that we occasionally hear things that you don't hear. That's part of why you're listening to us, because we might have information you don't have. Now, often that information is just completely is uh, access to insight from insiders in the industry, whether they are vendors or employees of Wizards or whatever. And most of the time, it's not something that would be um, considered scandalous. In this particular case, during my 100 plus conversations with quote unquote insiders about um, Ultimate Masters, you know, most of the gist of what I was discussing with people was how much of this set is getting printed. Um, as that that those discussions were ongoing, I was privy to many little tidbits uh, about knowledge of the set, when people knew the set was coming, when people didn't, how much of previous sets was printed according to so-and-so and, and so forth. And during one of those conversations, one of my contacts told me that and by the way, it's going to get better back to back to basics is in the set. It's not something, a piece of information I went looking for. Um, the person in question was not under NDA with Wizards. They had heard it secondhand from somebody else. So um, as far as I knew, the information was not broadly understood, but was circulating. 
And so the, at that moment, I was in a position where I had a choice to make. I could share that information with the people that follow us on, on Twitter and with the MTG Price Pro Traders, or I could keep it to myself. I was not in any particular position to profit from that information because Back to Basics was a card that people had been assuming was going to get reprinted at some point in the near future as far back as early summer. So the only couple of copies I had on hand at all, I sold in September. So financially, it was irrelevant for me, as it turns out. Um, But whether or not it had been, I would have done the same thing, which is to pass on that information within 24 hours of me receiving it because I would rather have access to the information and tell people I have the access so long as it doesn't uh, endanger my source, which in this case it didn't, um, then keep it to myself. Then somebody finds out later I knew the information and accuses me of, of not sharing it, which to me would be a much greater blow to my integrity. This is uh, a scenario I think where, first of all, your, your original tweets were certainly uh, if taken uncharitably, <clears throat> at the least arrogant, uh, and at the worst, well, they could just be taken worse than that. I don't think that uh, either were appropriate ways to read it, but like <laughs> in a vacuum, especially if somebody already had decided they didn't like MTG finance and didn't like you, uh, they were easy to look at and go, oh, this is awful. There's insider trading. Um, so I understand how people got to that decision point, um, even if I don't agree with it. What I find interesting is that people were so they, – they, they really felt like you had done something wrong, which I genuinely didn't understand. Um, it seemed like you essentially ended up – and people are going to accuse me of just like shilling for my friend, but whatever. I don't care. It seemed like you basically ended up the scapegoat for something that people don't like. People don't like the idea of quote-unquote insider trading in magic. And you were the person who said, I know a thing. And then later on said, hey, that thing I told you I know was true. Uh, I have this information. Um, so you can trust me next time. So – People see that and go, well, I don't like that this happened, uh, but I don't really know who to be angry at because the people who like were the ones who spoiled that information aren't public, right? Like, I don't know who that is, but this guy, this guy knew, and he's probably doing something wrong with it. Um, and if you're already, again, already not a fan of MTG Finance, you are really going to be quick to the, to the crucifixion at that point. Well, and the, and the funny thing here is, and, and we see this all the time on the internet. It's a, it's a failing of this communication medium, um, this this network that has unfurled across the globe, is that is how quick people are to jump to the gun without doing their own research. It immediately be- started t- turning into a thing where people were accusing Channel Fireball um, and Louis Scott Vargas in particular of being the one that had spilled the beans because it was his preview card. And the funny thing there is I got the information before I even knew this card was a preview card. So I didn't know that that was casting shade on on LSV or Channel Fireball at the time that I shared the information. As far as I knew, the the information was was, uh, platform agnostic. It wasn't connected to any particular content provider. I didn't know I was messing with somebody's spoiler, et cetera. Um, And to be honest, and if I'm being fair fair, um, to the people pointing fingers... Um, I didn't really much stop to think about it. I mean, in future now, I would get it, it would give me additional pause 
if I thought the car, I sh- I guess what I'm trying to say is I should have at least considered the impact it, that, that sharing the knowledge might have on a content, a follow content, fellow content creator. I will, I will give the, my accusers that much. Um, but it became very amusing because I had just the week before, um, you know, when LSV finished second at the pro tour, one of his first acts was to purchase a card through me that was actually me reselling on the behalf of somebody else, uh, another contact in the community. And so if somebody was really digging, they could be like, look, those two guys started talking last week. He <laughs> sold him a card. So obviously that's when he told him. <laughs> and, and the funny part is that's not at all what happened. I barely have ever talked to LSV in my life. Um, I sent him an apology after the fact saying I didn't mean, you know, for my actions here to cast shade on CFB. Um, because I thought that was warranted, but you know, we, there was no connection with CFB. And if I was in a conversation with somebody where I thought that they were violating their NDA, um, their non-disclosure agreement uh, that they were bound to by Wizards, I would never <laughs> encourage them to do that <laughs> or bait them into doing it without um, without them, you know, having said to me they didn't care. Like it, it, in, in this particular case, the information about Back to Basics was shared without prompting. It was part of a broader conversation and I, they just meant the person in question just mentioned it. So I had the information before I had any chance to parse, you know, what the implications of the information were at all. I'm laughing because I absolutely have and will harass people with that information on <laughs> <laughs> on unapologetically but you're you end up kind of in a tough situation because it's like okay well i know that i have this this information right and you you know anyone can get a piece of information and not know how much to trust it but if it's a piece of information you trust you're like okay it's probably real um you know do you say something and like possibly ruin somebody's spoiler and uh, make yourself a target for people thinking you're a bad guy or do you keep your mouth shut? And then if it ever, like if you kind of mentioned passing in the future that you did know about it, but you didn't say anything because you didn't want to ruin somebody's spoiler. Well, now you're withholding information, yeah. um, which is really bad. So it's kind of a rock and hard place. It's like, do you, are you supposed to say something there or not? Like there's ge- there's genuinely doesn't seem like there's a right answer for you for anyone, well, and, for anyone well, and, in that situation. Well, keep in mind, it's even a little bit more complex than that because people don't know who my source was, but I do. Let's put it this way. I don't know that my source wasn't telling other people that I knew, which complicates things. Because Mm -hmm. if it then gets around that I knew and didn't share, I'm not going to be able to deny that. Right. So I I actually doubled down in the course of this discourse on Twitter and said, I will do I would do this again. It would give me pause. It would give me pause. Um if I thought the card was a content creator's and if it came from a content creator and I was not in a position then to deny that that's where it came from, then I would not share it because then I can, then I can fall back on it was unsolicited from a content creator, but I knew what the effect on them would be if I shared it. So I treated it as a, as a confidential source and that's why I held it back. But that would that would still put me in a position where I could be in a position to profit on that information without sharing it. And I think that the conflict is greater in that. I, I think it's more important for the presentation of my integrity to for people to know that I would share the information as opposed to hold it. There seemed to be a take in the in the community from people that I didn't feel like they were thinking about it too hard. That once it became clear it wasn't a CFB leak or a content creator leak because there was a lot of discourse about how content creators needed to be audited 
and talk of insider trading and all this nonsense from people that don't really understand what those terms mean. Like this, this is not insider trading. Insider trading is in a regulated market like the stock market. If you have knowledge that is likely that a stock is likely to move in a certain direction based on information about what the company is doing or is going to do, that the rest of the market does not share. And you get that from an insider and you trade on that information. That's insider trading. You, you have an advantage in a public market that you should not have had. That, that's not what's going on on here. This is a unregulated market and the information was not solicited and I didn't trade on the information. So I, it's not insider trading. Well, so I think, you know, I, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and say I don't – most people didn't seem to be accusing you directly of insider trading but rather we're drawing correlation. Some people you definitely said he's insider trading but it's like, well, once it's an unregulated market, technically that can't exist. But the feeling is the same of you have information and can – that is not available to the public that you can then profit on uh, because the, the, no, the thing is, it, 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 if I can prove that you knew, let's say that we, we were a regulated market, it's still not insider trading because I had to tr trade on the information, which I didn't. Well, I didn't buy or sell the card in question. I And I shared the information publicly. So at worst, I am spoiling people's knowledge of a forthcoming product. People can argue that I busted the hype bubble a couple of days too early but that's about it. So like if I if if I had burst that bubble six months ago, I suspect I would have got a letter from Wizards. Right. Um, I didn't get any contact from Wizards. And the reason for that is like, what is the real harm? I mean, the, the preview came out like 48 hours after I released information or something. So overall, it, it was a blip on the radar and, and meant nothing to no one. But some people seem to think that um, it was... I was also accused from a, another angle of using the information to uh, increase my status, my brand, or to prove I was a big shot. I understand how if you don't know, if you haven't interacted with me or don't know anything about me, or you take my tweets unfiltered, because I certainly do nothing to, um, I do not structure my tweets <laughs> in a way that is meant to just uh, assist you in understanding that I'm not humble bragging. Um, I share information factually and people interpret it as they see fit. And I don't really do much to fight it. Um, but if I, I can assert this much, if I'm sharing information like that, it's true that I want you to believe that you can trust me about the validity of the information you're getting from me. But it's untrue that I view that as something that makes me some kind of uh, superhuman or special individual or that it like gives me a major ego boost. It has nothing to do with that. It's about understanding that there's a lot of bad information out there, <laughs> cough, cough, Rudy, um, and that our rule declared is that we are going to provide good information, factual information that people um, that can help people. And because I believed that back to basics being in the set might already be knowledge that was in the hands of members of the community that could profit from it, there was a good chance that those people, not me, were going could be in a position to take advantage of players. The faster players found out that the card was in the set, the qu quicker they could make decisions that were relevant. So again, I would I would definitely make the same decision in the same circumstances. Sure, uh, and there's so there's a couple points things I want to mention here. Uh, so let me think about them before I forget. The first is that this scenario is interesting because you could have the exact same problem come up with other people in the magic community who weren't 
finance people uh, who end up with essentially information ahead of time that they're not supposed to have. Um, and there seems to be a, a consensus among the community uh, that you shouldn't talk about information that you got sort of illicitly until it's public knowledge. So Seth, Stefan Olive, likes to say he won't talk about spoilers until they're on Reddit, um, which is essentially the same scenario, right? Like he gets, he can get information, especially, uh, you know, I'm sure he has a lot of conversations with people who are closer to wizards. Um, sure. He can get information ahead of time about what's going to be in a set. And then he's saying, I won't tell anyone until it's on Reddit. Uh, and it's the exact same scenario that you're in. The only difference is Seth has a different public persona than you do or me or a lot of people in our shoes. So uh, I would point out that a lot of people have these same conflicts where it's like, well, I can tell you guys and ruin it for somebody or I cannot tell you guys and make it look like I'm doing stuff that's uh, shady. Um, on the topic of things being insider trading, you're right. You didn't you didn't make any money on the trade um, in the same way that somebody who knows that a business is about to announce a merger and their stock is going to skyrocket, they could know that ahead of time. But if they don't trade on that uh, knowledge, then it's not insider trading. You have to trade to do that. That doesn't change, but it still feels bad. Um, and in like the stock market and securities and stuff like that, uh, you can short things. Um, which you don't have the option of doing in magic really. So if you don't own back to basics and you find out it's getting reprinted, there's nothing you can do, right? Like there's no way to, to, to act, to, to take action on that information. Finding out that something's not in the set, for instance, if somebody said, Hey, uh, just so you know, Leyline of the Void isn't in this set, that's actionable. So this particular case, uh, you kind of went the wrong direction with that information or you received the wrong information. Um, even though it's more fun to find out what's in the set, what's not in the set is more profitable. The, yeah, I, 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 go I ahead. have one more. Well, you, you can go ahead, but I have one more thing that I want to mention. On the topic of Seth, because um, he's a good guy and we always had good conversations. Um, and I appreciate that from his position, he takes a very mainstream, like, try to take a balanced approach from all angles. He's not anti-MGG finance. He's not uh, solely... Uh, pro community, you know, he's a, pr a pretty balanced perspective and he's associated with a very mainstream site. So that's to be expected. Um, but I find it, I think it's entirely arbitrary to say that Wizards is allowed to set the standard for what constitutes information being public. That, that I, I find that completely ridiculous. And that's not the case in any other consumer products media domain. Like I've, I've been a journalist as far back as 20 years ago in um, travel and tourism, technology, video games, um, music, etc. And in all of those domains, if information is uh, made public, it's a leak, it's a problem for the company, but nobody crucifies the journalist. I mean, if people are constantly covering what's going to be in the new iPhone or the new you know, the Pixel 3 or whatever, and reporting on that six months ahead of time with information that has not been officially confirmed by the companies. Th those articles are run day in, day out. They don't, they're not kicked out of the the uh, journalism league. <laughs> like the Their credentials are not revoked. That's normal journalism and consumer products. If you can find information about something that's coming out, you share it and people that are appreciative to know that information in advance. And it's a problem internally for the company. I find it odd that magic players take the side of wizards in this domain and and feel as though they are legally obligated to play ball in the way that wizards tells them they should. 
specifically stating that if it's if it's made public on Reddit, now it's public is silly. I, I had every reason to believe that the information was broadly enough understood. Like, I'm not the only one who knew this information is what I'm getting at. Um, that people were already trading on the information. And if people, if I think people are already trading on it, that means players, people that follow us are probably have a chance of getting screwed. So all the more reason to share the information so that the playing field is leveled on in a minor way that doesn't really disrupt the hype cycle for the product in question. Well, this, this is a good segue. Um, but yes, I think players, I think part of the reason why magic is handled differently than say the iPhones is because people have a lot more um, emotional attachment to this. Generally it's, it's a, it's a hobby. It's an identity. You know, people don't make their identity out of liking iPhones or having an iPhone generally, <laughs> but like gamers really, the, have uh, strong... the, the people that sleep overnight outside, Apple stores would call that question. Well, sure, 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 sure. But I mean, like gamers as a group definitely define their personalities by the media they consume, which is a horrible thing to do, but they do it. So they're much more akin, more likely, I think, to be on Wizard's side, right? It's, it's, but, you know, the, beside the point, the, the, the one other point I wanted to make is that. The you know you talk about like the iPhone leaks and the Pixel leaks and stuff like that. Uh, that stuff happens all the time, and the reason it happens all the time is because there are a ton of people in the pipeline who have that information. So there are a lot of opportunities for it to sneak out. And guess what? The same is true of magic spoilers. You know, it's not like you're looking at only the people within Wizards of the Coast who know the cards that are being reprinted plus the their contact at a given website you know their whoever they email at channel fireball plus lsv it's not like those are the only people that know back to basics is getting reprinted there are so many other people in the product chain that have access to that information any marketing outside marketing departments anyone doing printing of marketing materials Everyone who works at the card warehouse uh, and think about all the people who work at a, at a printing shop like that. Uh, I mean, you don't just have the guys on the line actually printing the cards of which there could be tens or possibly hundreds of people. You also have all the people within that company who are subject to know that information. Uh, and then there's all the contractors. Think about all the people who write flavor text. A lot of the people that you guys follow on Twitter have been contracted by wizards to do flavor text. Um, so they're writing and they are probably, you know, they're unlikely to be the only person that knows within their realm of influence too. For instance, what percentage of uh, people do you think who have gotten flavor text uh, assignment from wizards for a card didn't tell their spouse? Uh, and on that front, what about all the artists? You know, the artists who tell their spouses or friends, uh, expecting their, you know, to, them to be cool and not tell people. I happen to be very good friends with the sibling of a magic artist. Uh, and he's never told me anything despite my best attempts, um, <laughs> nor has the artist in question. Uh, so they've been very good about it, but that doesn't mean everyone is. Uh, so there are a million holes for this information to come out of. So it's, it's also kind of, you shouldn't look at this and go, oh, well, Channel Fireball screwed the pooch or it's LCV's fault or whatever. Like there are just so many people in the chain that it's not reasonable to think that other people don't have that information. And 
and take that further, that means there are a lot of people who could be making just uh, making purchases and, and sales based on this information. And if they're smart, they're going to keep their mouth shut, right? The guy working at Cardamundi who prints the cards, although I think Cardamundi is out of business now, right? The guy working at the, the shop on the line who sees these cards getting printed a couple months before the release, if he's smart, he's going to go home. He's not going to say a damn word. And then he's just going to like have his wife do some trading for him online, right? Like under her name or something like that, or he's going to go through his friend and tell his friend information. His friend does it all under a different name, address, everything. And he takes 20%. You know, they're going to kind of just be quiet about this because if they don't talk about it, it means they get to keep doing it. So if you're worried about insider trading, like in this scenario, it's not, this is nothing, right? This could be going on by so many people in so many places that I got news for you. If you're worried about it, it's already happening and it's happening all over the place. Which is why my position will continue to be. If I have information that is not directly from a singular source who I know is the only person that knows it, I'm going to assume it is broadly circulating. In which case, the faster I tell more people, the the, the less uh, information asymmetry will exist in the market. And, and to me, it's that simple. The, um, the other angle here that we haven't discussed is never assume that information that leaks from wizards was not leaked intentionally. It is common practice. I've been running a, a marketing agency for 20 years. We've run disinformation campaigns on multiple occasions. Disinformation. And it is common practice. Disinformation. Um, and it is common practice in consumer products to leak information to drive hype. We saw this uh, in, when Modern Masters 2015 was bombing. They started releasing information about forthcoming sets almost immediately. We got like some early uh, teases of things that were forthcoming that weren't supposed to come out because, and it was very suspicious, the timing. <laughs> there is every, every reason to believe that they were jumping ahead in the hype cycle to get to shut down the story about how one set wasn't good and drive uh, eyeballs. So I can't remember if it was like, if it was um, Dominaria that got partially spoiled or Battle Bond. Um, I'd have to go back and check my notes um, before I misspeak. But I, I know that at least a couple of times in the last few years, there have been suspicious leaks that look, that reeked to me of being PR driven. Yeah. I mean, some of them are really obvious, like putting the conspiracy cards in the wrong set packs. So people saw them ahead of times. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's just one example and there can be different shades of that information. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not claiming that back to basics was a PR stunt. Right. Like nobody wizards is not targeting me with my 4,000 Twitter followers as like a major PR venue. They're going to target someone like Saf if they want to want to do something like that. But the, I also didn't have reason to believe again, that the information wasn't widely held. And so much for me only talking about it for five minutes. I think yep. we've covered it. Let's jump over to the much more fascinating um, estimated value of Ultimate Masters. Um, I called a couple of weeks ago now that this was going to be the most valuable master set of all time um, when I did the initial calculations on mythics and rares and we talked about that. <laughs> um, and people expressed some skepticism and said, oh, the rest of it's going to suck and blah, blah, blah. But I ignored them because I know those people don't bother to do the math. Um, and those of us that do do the math know <laughs> could see spot a mile away that this was going to be a set where they followed through on a promise. Um, and sure enough, uh, Saffron Olive, uh, the aforementioned uh, magic personality, 
did release his expected value of Ultimate Masters, and the TDLR of that is that he's got the expected value of the set pegged at $427, including um, Mythics, Rares, and Commons, Commons, the foils you get in every pack, and the Ultimate Box Topper that is given in every sealed box. $427 versus an average current selling price somewhere in about in and around 280 US. That is really good for the guy buying packs uh, or buying anything really. I mean, that is insane value all said and done. Uh, I don't think anything has come out with a MSRP to like, per, or I shouldn't say MSRP, purchasable price to value like maybe the first modern masters was close. Uh, but that's pretty nuts. Um, now I guess I will temper this by saying that EV by, or the value of a sealed product like this by its nature means that it will go down because those cards will be on the market and prices will, because the difference exists, people will be cracking product to sell them because there's a profit. And in a world where there's unlimited product, eventually the value becomes equal to the price you can pay for it. Um, basically. Exactly. Now, the question is, is there enough product in, out there in order to hit that saturation point? With modern masters, there was not. There was not enough product that you could crack it all in order to pull the price down so essentially always remained profitable to open modern masters because there wasn't enough of it we don't know if that's the case with uma yet Um, we know that stores are getting packs right like walmarts and targets are going to get packs um so there will be additional much more supply out there than maybe was expected initially uh and if a booster you know if it's 400 and what 425 dollars for a sealed box and it's tw- is it 24 packs uh that works out to uh 17 in value per pack um you know if you can buy a blister a three pack blister at walmart for 30 bucks you know ten dollars a pack or at buy two packs get one yeah or you know whatever that number is if that number comes in underneath 17 dollars, then it's worth it to just go to walmart and rip every single one off the rack and if we're talking walmarts and targets that's a lot of packs um so just keep that in mind i guess that like it's really good right now but it will go down uh most likely where you what won't lose its value is the box toppers because those are not in the Walmart packs. Those are specific to the sealed products. So those are going to be a lot better than everything else in UMA will be. And I don't remember, does the, do the big box blister packs have foils? They do, because yeah. I thought I remember them saying there was one other difference. No, I think I think the only difference is the complete lack of access to the box okay. toppers. So, I mean, the thing here is it, this ultimately depends on how many boxes are being printed. And at first, vendors were telling me they were having trouble getting their allocations. And I've still, I still, I have like a table of contacts and I've gotten a mixed bag of responses. And I think it, it part of it chalks up to how big is the vendor that I'm talking to? Um, what is their relationship with their distributor like? How many distributors do they work with? What part of the country are they in? How much product do they move, et cetera? Um, all of this plays into what their allocation is going to end up being. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a distributor and you've got, uh, you know, a guy who decides who has 
in the last year started moving double the product they used to, and they are a competitive vendor in the area, it might impact your ability to get as much as you want because the distributor is going to sell through to the person that they that seems capable of taking it on um, to strengthen a, a growing relationship. There's a lot of factors in play. But my guess at present is that this is uh, not super scarce. So it's not like Modern, Modern Masters 2013 print run, which was relatively tiny, um, that it is somewhere in the middle. Um, so probably less than M25 and Iconic Masters, maybe something like the M, the Modern Masters 2017 print run. Um, a lot of it depends on how many waves too, right? Like the print run could be really big, but if there is no second wave, if they don't, if they don't send them out via distributors again in six months, then that's going to have a big impact on how quickly it rebounds. If they do do that, if more of this shows up in the market in June or August or whatever, then um, you know that's going to retard the uh, the rebound potential of the key singles. Um, singles that are don't do not have a high demand profile are going to get crushed here um, and stay crushed for a oh, long time. <laughs> it's, so the, the, yeah, stuff like that. Like that has a very low demand profile. It's gonna it's going to get pressured and pressured and pressured downhill because um, cards like Liliana will be much more resilient to taking a hit. Um, so. One of my contacts, <laughs> after having a long conversation about information I'm not supposed to have, may as well throw some more out there, um, told me that Fate Reforged had 900,000 boxes printed um, and that Cons was like 1.8 million boxes or something. Um, then they went on to say that their napkin math suggested that there was like 1.2 million boxes of uh, Ultimate Masters forthcoming. Um, I asked to look at that math because it didn't seem right to me and I haven't gotten it yet. So I'm taking that with a huge grain of salt because 1.2 million boxes of this times, say, Wizards getting like 150 a box from distributors or something um, would be $180 million in revenue. Direct, not retail, direct. If you believe that Wizards' total brand revenue is between four and five hundred million dollars for Magic, growing single low single digit percentage per year, as which is what all of the investor feedback indicates over the last couple of years, um, that seems way too high to me. That's the amount I would attribute to a fall set or pretty close to it, um, like a Guilds of Ravnica or a, or a KTK. Um, I can easily believe that there was 1.8 million boxes of KTK sold. That was a very popular set. There was the potential at one point to be cracking $1,000 foil Russian polluted deltas and so forth. Set was very popular. Standard was very popular that year. That number makes sense to me. I can't see Ultimate Masters being a $200 million product. If that number is correct, that's a lot of product. Um, a lot more. That That's would put it on the medium to large print run um, for Wizards as opposed to a small to it's medium. A big print run, if that's the case. Like, a lot. Yeah. Which, but, this is going in the big box stores. So maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, people keep saying that, but I, I don't think people fully understand the sell-through in a big box store versus uh, uh, LGS. I think that the average pack sits on shelves at a Target or a Walmart for four or five, maybe even 10 times longer than it does at an LGS. I, I think that the rack jobbers that work 
that like there's a company that basically does that for the big box stores that manages that whole section. That's not inventory that the buyers at Target and Walmart managed personally. Um, as was the case with Toys R Us, uh, a rack jobbing outfit does that, which basically means there's another company that says, you know, we will rent this space from you or there's some agreement in place where um, they are providing product for a certain space and there's a profit chain sharing arrangement with the store. Um, I, I don't think that they're replacing that product very often. <laughs> Every time I've ever gone into a store, like here's a little test you can do. Take a pack of magic cards at your local big box, put a little mark on it, little marker mark, like a red marker or something, just very tiny little dot on the back of the pack. Go back in three months, six months and see if that pack is still sitting there. You can do it on the one at the back of the rack so that the rack has to clear before that thing is going to get bought. I'm willing to bet you that pack will still be there. Um, and I think that that matters a lot. Yes, there are tens of thousands of big box stores, but if they don't, if they go through products significantly more slowly than LGSs do, then it might not matter that much. Now, if they are restocking that product um, through the distributor in question that services those stores for the next three years, then that's certainly going to factor into how quickly the set rebounds. Um, I think you're completely right about how fast the big box stores sell through it. I would, you could make the argument that it's different this time because the, of the value of the product, right? Like it's more valuable than just normal cons booster pack. Uh, there's more here than there would be normally. Um, and that, so just that alone may get more people like you or I or other enterprising individuals to go hunt them down. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a few other relevant points here. The one of them is that even if, first of all, Saf is using like today numbers, like probably pulled card price numbers from over the weekend as he was building his article. Mine will come out probably a week from now and will you, and the, the, all, my EV calc will probably be another 40 or 50 bucks lower because the prices will continue to fall. As we get to peak, if you ran those numbers again, and I think Saf is publishing and has published an ongoing spreadsheet where they're going to track the numbers over time, um, which I do as well. Um, the people are going to get a viewpoint, a public viewpoint of how the price graphs are changing on this set, which is going to be pretty fascinating to watch develop. I suspect what's going to happen here is leading into peak supply. Um, so over like six to eight weeks out from the set release, um, you're going to see prices depress another, could be up to a hundred dollars in EV. So let's say that the EV of this set comes down to the $330 range, maybe even as low as 300. <clears throat> That's still a very reasonable position. What should normally happen for a set? What happens with a standard set is that opening weekend box value might be 120 or something. Like I think Gills of Ravnica came out pretty hot, like a lot higher than normal because it had some kind of early spotted modern staples, um, Arclate Phoenix and Assassin's Trophy and the like. Um, and boxes were very profitable up front for stores that were churning through them. But what's normally expected to happen is that the EV of those boxes is going to drop real low, 70, 60, 50. I think in the course, in the case of like Ixalan or Fate Reforged or um, Dragon's Maze, EV was got down into the 30s, right? And then the question becomes, what is the longer term value to the player? If the player invested in the box, <clears throat> at what point do they come back to break even and potentially surpass it? And for sets like Modern Masters 2013 and 2015, those points were in a reasonable time frame in a couple of years. Modern Masters 2017 rebounded within like six months. 
Um, so if the print run was similar with Ultimate Masters having a much richer pool of cards with a higher demand profile than Modern Masters 2017, um, then you'd be in pretty good shape. So a lot of this hinges on the print run. Um, my, my guess is that players may end up having to hold for about a year to feel really good about where they get out. I think that if you sell right, if you crack some boxes right up front and you sell the singles very effectively into a, into a network of ready uh, buyers who have worked with you in the past, you may be able to unload singles, um, recoup your costs and pocket a bunch of spare cards for your collection or for future speculation and do pretty good. I'm probably going to take more of a wait and see approach. I think I'm willing to sit on these boxes for a while and see if somebody gives me a really nice offer on my case that I pick up for a thousand, like two twenty five a box. Then, you know, if somebody offered me fifteen hundred, I might just flip it and run. Um, but short of that, I'll probably chill. I bought a couple of boxes that I'm just going to pop personally, just for funsies. Um, that will be part of my like collection budget. Um, but I think the case, the, the case I have will be something I'll sit on. And I don't think that those are going to be the best specs of the year either. Like I think that despite the really high IV of the set, if this print run is moderate to large, it could easily take some time. Like it could be that the rebound is 12 to 18 months. Um, but given how good the cards in this set are, um, I think you, you, you have, you have no reason to fear at minimum, you're, you'll probably break even. And I think the upside is, is significantly better. Now, one of the things that Saf always points out and everybody is right to is that there is variance involved, but, and you can shit the bed buying these boxes, but you got to get unlucky at mythic at rare at uncommon with your foils and the ultimate box topper to really strike out, right? Because, Mythics are contributing almost 100 bucks. Rares contribute 200 of the box. So given that you're getting 24 rares, three of which are mythics, you have to go wrong a lot to really undermine your box. The other thing is, Saf used a calculation of $40 for the box toppers. That seems way too yeah, conservative to me. Yeah, that does seem quite low. I, I noticed that as well. Way too conservative. I think I think he was in, in the... He's been challenged hundreds of times in social media the last few weeks, so he's conditioned to play it safe because he doesn't want to have egg on his face if he it, if he promotes the set in a optimistic way. So he's taking the potentially the most pessimistic view. But I think if you take if you go with my number for ultimate box toppers, which is that there are almost no stinkers in that group, and given what we've seen with Mythic Edition, uh, sorry, not with Mythic Edition, with masterpieces. If the amount of these mythic of these box toppers is even cl relatively close within, say, 20 or 30 percentage points of masterpieces we've seen in the past, the increased pedigree of the box toppers should counter the um, a differential in number printed of about that amount. Now, if there are four or four five times more of the box toppers, then there would be. Um, with masterpieces, that's another thing entirely. So for instance, if you believe that there is 1.2 million boxes, right? 1.2 million boxes divided by 40, the number of box toppers, says 30,000 of each box topper. Sorry, were you expecting me to <laughs> respond to that? <laughs> no, sorry, I was sneezing. Okay. Um, so 
I believe I have advanced the number multiple times that I think there's about 10,000 of each masterpiece, something like that with plus or minus. mm, I don't think there's any less than 40% less than that. And I don't think there's more than 50% more than that. So somewhere in the six to 15,000 range would be my outside um, on uh, of that range. If you believe that there are 15,000 masterpieces, for instance, say from Kaladesh Inventions, and that there are thirty, there actually are 30,000 box toppers, then they are roughly twice as common as a masterpiece. That still doesn't give you $40 numbers. Like, there are, ma- there are box topper Liliana of the Veil, box topper Tor- Tarmogoyf, box topper Fulminator Mage, box topper Snack- Snapcaster Mage. These are going to be $200, $300, $400 cards. If... EDH can drive inventions, mana vaults, mana crypts, and soul rings into the three to five hundred dollar range. Then those modern staples that are played as four ofs in multiple formats can absolutely get there. And I think it's gonna the market's gonna be flooded. There's gonna be tons of downward price pressure on them as everybody's popping their boxes and trading away the ones they don't want to keep for their collection. And it's gonna seem like the bottom's gonna fall out on them. And there are gonna be some very very good deals that are going to develop. Um, especially if you compound them with some kind of eBay coupon or whatever. Um, $40 seems too low to me. And I think if you go to 60 or 80 as a more realistic mid to long-term number, then the EV of the set pops up over 450. And it's going to be very difficult for the market to beat that down low enough that your box doesn't make you money. Yeah. And I think, you know, as far as Seth is concerned, he's incentivized to not uh, talk about he he's incentivized to to make that number lower, right? Because if if it's too, if he goes too low with it, then uh, and it's worth more. People are like, oh well, th- this was a good decision already, and now it's even better because he estimated these to be too low. But if he goes too high, and people are buying that product, uh, assuming that their box hopper is going to be worth eighty dollars a pack but it's only worth 50, uh, then they're losing money. And they're like, what the hell? Seth cost me money. I wouldn't have bought these otherwise. So I understand for him exactly why it's better for him to be very prudent about those recommendations and how much they're worth. So I, I get where he's coming from. Um, but y- y- yeah, the numbers at the end of the day are still definitely in favor uh, of essentially everything. And that's that's a p- perspective I'm taking essentially is, um, you know, I'm not really chasing sealed product here. I'm... Uh, of the opinion that I think the best way to go is going to be targeting uh, mythic, the myth, the, the box hoppers. I think that's likely where your best, your best dollars are um, in, in the short term in, in all terms, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the summary is EV held up, looks great at the gate. Of course, it's going to fall further. It probably doesn't fall enough to make um, box prices scary, especially if you got in in the 225 to 250 range that like a lot of the early uh, purchasers did. You're in a very good position. Um, And, you know, as the story develops, as the print run shapes up and we get a sense of whether there are still boxes lingering in the market commonly in six months, we'll have a much better idea about how much downward pressure this exerts on the market for the relevant staples and for how long. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have to wrap it up because I have to go to bed. Uh, James, where can our listeners find you? 
You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MDG Priced. I published uh, an article um, dealing with the cards that were not included in Ultimate Masters, um, giving you a couple of things you could look at as potential specs for uh, forthcoming coupon sales and so forth. Um, so I want to have a look at that over on MTGPrice.com. Um, we were also running a Black Friday sale. Um, where we gave 20% off the annual uh, purchase price of a Pro Trader membership, which is a pretty sweet deal. Uh, very confident that the value is there. Um, for anybody who's been thinking about coming on board to help support this cast and support the site, um, we got a lot of exciting upgrades coming in 2019, and we will be increasing membership prices uh, probably in the second half of next year. So if you want to lock in a lower price, uh, if you hear this on the cast and you are, you know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday are past, but you want to get in on it, I will extend it for uh, until, say, for the rest of the week. If people hear this by, call it the December 1st, um, you just got to ping me on Twitter via DM and I'll hook you up. What a, what a gesture. <laughs> um. Wow, that sounded skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it is. It is. I've been, I mean, sarcasm is my natural response. Um, <laughs> No, it is. It is very nice. Uh, I mean, let, I'm let, let me put it to you this way: uh, Have I made you fifty dollars this year? Uh, probably. Yeah. Probably. Like personally, have I made you fifty dollars? Yeah. yeah, I know you have. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter, Wizard Bumpin, B U M P I N. Uh, I write every Monday the Watchtower articles on MTG Price, and uh, I'm also here. All right. Thank you, Travis. See you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.